Good morning. Um, so as Kelly said, I'm Arlie Smith Pearson. And I am Lawrence Maloge. <laughs> you will be tested on the pronunciation of Larry's last name at the end. That's one of the pop-up questions. <laughs> Um, and we're going to be focusing on digital evidence, electronic evidence um, in family law cases today. Generally, we're going to be talking about um, text messages, social media, and voicemails. Uh, I want to encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation and not save them for the end. Um, please send anything in uh, that you've been waiting to discuss, and we may not know the answer, but we can at least, uh, you know, talk about what we think about the questions. And let me see if I can work this. Great. So when dealing with electronic evidence, the number one rule uh, that you want to remember is to preserve the evidence as soon as possible um, and make backup copies. I believe uh, that anyone, no matter how long or how short of a time they've been practicing, has had a client whose phone was dropped uh, in water, the screen cracked, they lost their phone, their carrier turned off their service. Um, you know, any number of things happen quite often where people are going to lose their uh, electronic data. So it's very important to make sure that as soon as the client contacts you, get that electronic evidence um, and try and get it multiple times in multiple forms uh, because we all know how trials work out um, and sometimes it's good to just have a backup plan. I have to use my mouse instead of my keypad to change the thing. So how do you preserve uh, this electronic evidence? For text messages, and this applies to text messages on someone's phone, it applies to um, social media, media messaging um, apps like Facebook Messenger, Instagram direct messages, um, WhatsApp, um, emails, really any way that people are communicating uh, directly through a written form. Um, there's a couple things that you want to look out for when you are preserving uh, this evidence to use in court. Um, the best way to preserve text messages is getting a screenshot directly from the client's phone. Sometimes a client is not able to do that. They don't understand how their phone um, or their computer doesn't have that capability. Um, and the next best thing to do is take another phone and take an actual photograph of the client's phone with the message displayed. Um, what's important uh, is what is going to be in that text message and the photograph. You want to make sure that you get the entire content, that you get the date and time that the message was received, and you get the telephone um, or the sender's information. To go into those things a little um, more in depth for the content, you want to make sure that you get the entire message um, and the entire conversation. So, you know, when you are speaking with your client and they send you just one screenshot, you want to have a conversation with them. What's on either side of that conversation? Ask for their consent 
Um, if you can look and see what else is in that conversation and whether you think it's important to have. Um, and it's also important to have a, um, a frank conversation with your client and ask if they deleted any messages. Um, sometimes a client will delete things that they sent that they believe are unflattering or hurt their case, things like that. And you want to make sure that you know what's missing um, to prepare for that when you come to court and your opposing party pulls out their phone and there is a string of uh, conversations that you weren't prepared for. So if your client has, you know, they tell you, yes, I did delete um, part of the conversation. There are um, apps uh, that you can use generally for a fee that can download entire message histories, um, even if the message has been deleted. In addition to um, getting the entire content of the message, you're generally going to need more than one screenshot, and it's going to be a multiple page photograph or document. When you're taking those screenshots, you're going to want to try and overlap the conversation um, so that you have a little piece of the, the previous um, page on the second page um, so that you can imagine if you print out all of these pages um, and you go to the printer in your office and somebody had dumped them all on the floor, you would be able to put them back together um, even though they've been put out of um, out of order so it want you want it to make it easy to um, to be able to know what part of the conversation is where for capturing the time and date that the message was received um, if you are following the first rule of preserving evidence early and often uh, you may have a client who comes in shortly after a communication and if they take the screenshot that day, the date and time uh, will display on their phone as today or yesterday. I would encourage you to still get that text message that day they come in because it's better to have it saying today than nothing. But then the next time they come in, try and take it, uh, take a second screenshot where it displays an actual date instead of today or yesterday. Um, generally on the phones, you have to wait a couple days um, to where it displays the actual date. And then finally, you want to make sure that you capture the sender's information. Um, often in our phones, on um, other, like on social media, things like that, people are going to use nicknames. Um, sometimes they're unflattering, uh, especially if you're doing this in some sort of custody situation. Uh, I've had a client who had her um, child's father in her phone as sperm donor. Um, so there's two issues when you have an unflattering contact information. Um, one is what we're going to talk about authentication and authorship, uh, which we'll get to later. For that issue, you're going to want to take um, a screenshot showing you know, the communication and it'll say from sperm donor. But then you're gonna to wanna to go into the client's phone um, or into the social media profile page to show the contact information for sperm donor, right? So you show that the name given in the phone is an unflattering name, but it's connected to this phone number. Or 
you know, they use a nickname on their social media account, but it's connected to this um, profile. Same with an email. Sometimes it just comes up with a name, but you want to go and capture that email address. Um, the other issue beyond authentication, which we're going to get a little more into, is that um, there's the ethical issue of changing it. Um, you know, if, if you're going to go into a custody case um, and there's an unflattering name for the child's father, you, know, you may be concerned about how that's going to appear to the judge. Um, so have you ever thought about asking the client to change the phone numbers, contact name in their phone and then taking screenshots? Um, I know I've wanted to. Um, Larry, what do you think about that? Well, because the ultimate question in the authentication of these messages is whether this is a fair and accurate representation of the message um, that they received right at that time. Um, I don't think the client can honestly say yes to that question if they have altered the contact name. So I think um, if they do change it, then at some point in your direct of the client, like it's going to come out that they changed the contact name. Um, I, 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 I would feel ethically obliged to make sure that that information came, down, came out. Um, so that would then ultimately defeat the whole purpose of changing it in the first place. Um, I, I think that uh, it is what it is. You're, you're, you're stuck with that unflattering nickname and um, we'll have to maybe, you know, have, have the client explain a little bit about why they <laughs> entered the nickname the way they did uh, to try to mitigate that damage. Exactly. Um, so you have gotten your electronic evidence. Um, that's great. You have it ready to go to court. How are you going to get it into evidence? Um, for the actual screenshots, the photos that you're bringing into the courtroom, it's pretty basic. You're going to lay a foundation as you would for any photograph where you're going to have the client, you know, describe what it is. And then the ultimate question, is this a fair and accurate representation of the message that you received on X dates? Um, but the issue uh, is a little more complicated when we get to the question of authorship and authentication of the actual communication contained in the photograph. So authorship, who sent that text message, is a question of authentication under Pennsylvania Rule of Evidence 901. 901 has a pretty low standard for admitting evidence. Generally, it's just that the proponent uh, demonstrates that the item is what they claim it is. And in the, com in the um, situation of electronic communications, here you are the proponent, and really what you're saying is you're offering this communication, this message, as having being written and sent by person X. How do you show that it was written and sent by person X? So there is some case law on this, uh, starting in 2005 with, in the interest of FP, uh, the court uh, discussed electronic evidence in general, finding that it's not um, inherently more unreliable than non-electronic evidence. 
Um, and that the, the most important holding in this is that um, 901 applies to electronic evidence and that circumstantial evidence or circumstantial evidence of authorship can be a, uh, sufficient to authenticate. So what types of circumstantial, circumstantial evidence are enough? Um, in Commonwealth versus Coach or Koch and Commonwealth versus Mangle, we get two cases showing us what's not enough. Um, and I think it's important when you read these cases to read them with the lens that it is a criminal prosecution. And in family law cases, we often have it a little easier than a prosecutor because generally our parties know each other. Um, so in Commonwealth versus Koch, we're um, talking about text messages. Um, and here the court found that um, where the defendant owned a cell phone, um, and they could prove he owned the cell phone, but not that he sent the messages or he wrote the messages, that's not sufficient. Just ownership of a device is insufficient circumstantial evidence to prove authorship and authentication. Um, and then similarly in Commonwealth versus Mangle, we have Facebook messages. Here um, a detective found a social media account, a Facebook account that belonged to um, a particular person and the account had his same name, uh, his hometown, his high school. Um, but the court said that the messages sent from that Facebook account, there wasn't enough evidence to show that this defendant sent the messages on that Facebook account. So these cases would make it seem like authentication is actually a pretty high bar but I would argue um, that they don't. Um, that in family law cases where the parties know each other, they set out kind of circumstantial evidence um, that you really just have to identify the person who's sending the message. Um, and Luckily, the court has caught on um, and decided to codify some of this case law and give a little more guidance to um, practitioners about how to deal with this question of authentication. Um, and so it was recently announced that the rule 901 is uh, being amended and in effective October 1st, 2020, there's going to be a new subsection to uh, 901 the new subsection is 901B11, and it is specifically dealing with digital evidence. Um, and the court has said that to connect digital evidence to a person, uh, you can use direct evidence such as testimony of a person with knowledge or circumstantial evidence such as identifying content or proof of ownership, possession, control, or access to a device or account um, at the time when, corroborate, when corroborated by circumstances indicating authorship. And the comments to the rule or the amendment to the rule are very helpful. And they really, you can see some of this case law just being codified into the comments. Um, so it defines digital evidence in a broad sense. So really any communication statement or image existing in electronic medium. So that's going to include emails, text messages, social media, things like that. Um, this is an important thing that I think some judges often get confused about, but the comments make clear 
that the proponent of the digital evidence is not required that no one else could have been the author. And so you do not have to disprove that um, the neighbor came, didn't come into the house while your client was taking a shower and send this message, right? You just have to show that more likely than not, person X authored this text message. You don't have to eliminate the entire universe of other people who could have authored it. And then um, they give examples of what direct evidence can be. Um, it could be the opposing party admitting that they made this statement or possibly a third party witness who observed the opposing party um, send the message. And then examples of circumstantial evidence are identifying content um, such as self-identification, distinctive characteristics, um, and then circumstantial evidence. Um, sorry. Oh, and then they do highlight that possession alone of the device is insufficient. And that's your um, Commonwealth versus Koch holding that you have to have possession of the device plus some indication of authorship. Just to be clear, the other example there, um, I, I made that up um, under direct evidence. It was, I was just trying to think of some other <laughs> example of direct, uh, direct evidence. Um, it's not actually in the comments. Oh, thank you. Sure. But it's a good example. <laughs> um, so what does this look like in practice? Um, what I like to do is work it out with my client. When the client comes in and they have these text messages, we go through them um, and human beings do this naturally. Like we receive digital information and we are able to process the information that we receive and know where it comes from. The hard part is verbalizing what we do naturally. Um, and so I will talk to my client um, and in cases where they have received um, communications via, you know, they've been spoofed or they've used um, blocked numbers, things like that. I will ask them directly, how do you know it was um, the opposing party? And they generally um, will be able to say something, um, but if they're having a hard time verbalizing how they knew um, who it was, I will often ask the reverse. How do you know somebody didn't steal his phone and send this text message to you? How do you know it wasn't someone else? And when framed in that way, your client is often going to have that golden nugget that will just hook your authentication for you. Like, oh, he used this nickname or he spoke in half Creole, half English, which is how he always talks. Um, you know, so use your clients to get you to the authentication. Don't try and come up with this by yourself. But examples of things that um, will help you um, authenticate this digital evidence is um, the names on the account. If there's a profile picture um, attached to the account, you can use more than just the conversation that you're trying to get in. Um, maybe three days before the threatening text message, there was a text message that self-identifies. Um, and a self-identification is often where a person will, you know, identify themselves through a relationship like my son, my uncle, 
or they will identify themselves through a event um, that we know happened. Like, um, why'd you call the cops on me yesterday? Um, or, you know, what, what were we doing at the McDonald's when you, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, so things like identifying themselves through events or relationships to other persons um, are often very good ways to um, connect the message and the sender um, to your defendant. These um, kind of your, your golden ticket parts of the message are sometimes going to be a little farther back or forward in the message history. Um, which is what I like to go over with my client um, before you get in there and say, how are we going to connect it? Can I look through some of the conversation a little before and um, a little after? Larry, do you have any other um, examples of tying a conversation to a person? Yeah, I mean, the one that comes to mind, um, there was a case where the, the messages were sort of the crux of the case. Um, I think I think it was a PFA matter. Um, so there were these threats that I think were coming through sort of old fashioned SMS text messages. And we did exactly what you said. We went back into the history of those text messages and um, the golden ticket as you, the metaphor you were using um, were uh, photographs that the opposing party had taken of a deceased relative. Um, so you took a photograph of a photograph of this deceased um, uh, relative and sent it to the client. So you know, you're with, with those, that past history of, of messaging, we've already uh, substantially narrowed down the, the universe of possible authors here. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I mean, that's obviously uh, great evidence of, of authorship and was certainly enough to get us over the authentication hurdle. Um, and then one thing um, that I wanted to highlight before I turn it over to Larry is I have had some, um, some judges in PFA cases um, push back against my reliance on Commonwealth versus Koch and Mangle. Um, and they're saying that those are criminal cases. They're not helpful in family law cases or civil cases. Um, and I just want to highlight that a superior court um, opinion expressing and expounding on the rules of evidence is applicable in both civil and criminal. The rules of evidence apply the same in civil and criminal. So those cases, um, if you get pushed back, really do um, apply and they deserve the same weight um, for their propositions in a civil case as they do in a criminal case. If I could just interrupt here, this is Kelly. I'm gonna launch the first of the CLE um, polls. If you can just respond yes or no, attorneys, uh, this will be available for one minute. And please feel free to go on with the presentation. Thank you. Sure. Um, so this is where I take over, Arlie? Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, so voicemails. <clears throat> I feel like this is like becoming less and less of a thing, but um, uh, still you may uh, at some point have a, an important voicemail that you wanna enter into evidence. Um, so how to preserve, uh, this can actually be a little bit tricky. Um, if we're just talking about quality of the voicemail itself, um, then some phones are able to export that voicemail as an audio file, right? Um, and that's, um, you know, that's gonna get you the, the best audio quality. 
Um, and um, as Arlie was saying, number one rule, preserve early and, and often, um, you know, I, I would recommend if that is an option to, uh, to, to use it. Um, even if that's not ultimately the thing that you end up, you know, playing for the court, because um, at least you have that backup in case something, something does go wrong. Um, the issue is that you still are going to need to uh, link that voicemail to, uh, you know, the date and time that it was received. Um, and the audio file, um, more likely than not, is not going to give you that information. Um, so another way of uh, preserving a voicemail um, is a little bit um, maybe inelegant, um, but it would be to simply play uh, the message on the receiving device, um, your, most likely your client's phone, uh, put it on speakerphone, and then you use a different device to record it. Um, so that, um, that may solve your issue, uh, depending on whether or not um, uh, whether the, the phone will read out loud, so to speak, um, the envelope information, meaning the date and time of, of receipt. Um, but some devices uh, nowadays don't do that. Actually, um, I don't have an iPhone anymore, but I don't think the iPhone can do that, right? It, um, it'll show visually um, sort of the entry for the voicemail and have the date and time, um, but there's no way to actually get the device to say, again, out loud, um, the, uh, the, the date and time that you could capture in audio recording. So the way that I get around that hurdle um, is simply to just not to use a, uh, a pure audio recording, but to actually make a, a video recording. Um, so it's the client's phone and your client's finger, you know, <laughs> coming into the screen and pressing that particular entry, um, showing the date and time that the message would be received, and then it plays and you've captured now both the, the, the visual of the date and time uh, that the message was received plus the audio. Um, and uh, you know, this is important for a lot of different reasons. Um, I know um, lots of judges who actually um, will reject um, voicemails or other kinds of electronic evidence if it isn't linked to a particular date and time. Um, I don't know if you have those kinds of judges in your jurisdiction, but if you do, then it's obviously very important. Um, uh, but also it may have a lot of just legal significance, right? So if you're trying to uh, show that, uh, you know, the opposing party violated a, uh, a, a protection of abuse order, then obviously it's going to be important um, whether or not that message was received after the, um, the order went into effect. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that's, that's one, uh, you know, relatively simple way of uh, recording uh, or preserving the, uh, the voicemail in a way that you'll be able to then authenticate it at court. Um, yeah, and I, I actually did have, <laughs> I learned this the hard way. I, um, there was an example where what I had, I think it was an iPhone. I had the audio on one hand and then screenshots um, of, the, um, of the, uh, the, the, the voicemail entries on, on the client's phone. And opposing counsel did a good job of trying to attack um, the connection between those two things. And I actually ended up having to call the paralegal into the case as a witness um, to show that, you know, which, which of those voicemail entries connected to the audio. Um, and after that, I learned my lesson and it was videos from there on out. Okay. Um, we can move on to the next screen. Um, 
read a comment. Um, there's sure. a comment um, that they suggest having a police officer write a report uh, with the date, time, um, and caller information of the voicemail. What do you think of that? Um, if you have, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that could potentially work. Um, I think that in Philadelphia, it would be difficult. Um, I mean, if you're talking about maybe a detective um, would have the, the, the time um, and inclination to, to sit down and transcribe a, a message. Um, but then you are going to have the additional problem that you're going to actually have to call that person into court, uh, most likely to, um, to admit um, the, uh, the report in, into evidence. Um, so that's pretty uh, laborious uh, way, way of doing it um, for, for, you know, just based off of um, our practice or my practice um, here in Philadelphia. But um, I suppose that would be a way of, of uh, solving the issue as well. Uh, that suggesting came from Bucks County. Um, and we also have a chat um, that in, I guess they don't indicate what county this one is in, but they have been granted, oh, like, like Homan County, they've been granted permission by judges to bring the client's cell phone in as evidence um, if it's a voicemail being used. Yes. Um, my... Yeah, I, I think in a pinch um, that can that can definitely uh, suffice. Um, again, in Philadelphia, my experience has been that most judges they they want to um, uh, they like to have something to put into the file. Um, so uh, you know, in in the example of, of uh, a video recording, I would be actually storing that video recording um, onto something like a either a, a, a CD. Um, or a thumb drive, something like that. Um, but yes, I mean, in a pinch, I think you can just pass the client's phone um, up to the judge or everybody crowds around, I guess, the judge. Um, and then somebody presses the, um, maybe have the client then press the, uh, the appropriate voice message and, uh, and, then, and then play it um, for the court and then hope, you know, it would be captured by the, uh, the court's uh, digital recording uh, equipment. I, I do think that I agree with Larry that is um, possible in a pinch, but you also want to uh, think about if you're going to have to appeal, that's not going to make a great appellate record. Good point. Yeah. Okay. So uh, voluminous telephone calls and text messages. Um, so this is sort of a scenario where um, it may not be so much the content um, of, for example, like you know the uh, SMS text messages um, or, or the calls themselves. It's just that um, it's this sort of barrage um, of calls and text messages uh, that you may be uh, using to establish a, a pattern or course of conduct constituting stalking. Um, so uh, I think the, the best way to present this kind of evidence um, would be to uh, subpoena the telephone carrier uh, for what um, is generally referred to as the call detail uh, or text detail. Um, so I don't know if uh, people have seen one of these before, but um, uh, it sometimes actually will come in the format of, a, of an Excel spreadsheet 
um, or, or a similar type of chart. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's fairly bare bones. You're um, getting the date and time uh, of receipt, um, you know, uh, when the call was made, when the text message was uh, sent and received, um, the uh, receiving number, which is going to be um, more likely than not your client's telephone number, sending number, probably the opposing party, um, and if we're talking about calls, then the duration of the call. Um, uh, it's important to note that uh, you are not going to be getting the content um, of text messages um, through a text detail. It is just the, the bare bones sort of uh, uh, data that I, I just mentioned. Um, and uh, another little Note would be uh, when you're subpoenaing these kinds of records um, to uh, definitely ask for a letter of self-authentication. Uh, that way you don't run into the issue of having to try to subpoena somebody from uh, the telephone carrier to uh, actually appear in person um, or virtually nowadays um, as a custodian of record. Um, uh, and, you know, so that, that would be sort of the, the, the best way of trying to preserve and uh, present that information to the court. Uh, the next best um, would be to go back to the screenshot uh, slash photo method um, going into the call log um, or the text uh, message log um, on the client's device and just taking lots and lots of screenshots. Um, but, it, you know, that that can be a bit burdensome, uh, maybe a little bit difficult to present in court. Um, so if you can get the, the call detail or text detail, then um, I think that is uh, the, the preferable way of going about it. Thanks, Riley. <laughs> um, something to consider when you are dealing with uh, a voluminous telephone call or uh, text message situation um, is to summarize uh, the, uh, the important part of the information because, um, you know, I'm thinking to some cases in the past where um, this, uh, the, the, the caller text detail was, you know, 50, 50 or more pages long um, because that's how long the, uh, the, the, the stalking was going on. Um, so uh, it, it is helpful. And, and also um, that caller text detail may capture lots of um, irrelevant information, right? Um, so uh, to, to summarize that information, uh, we have uh, the rules of evidence uh, 1001 uh, regarding summaries. Um, and you know, this doesn't have to be anything particularly fancy. Um, really the, 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 the crux of these records is how many calls, how many text messages were sent from a particular number, you know, the opposing party to your client's phone receiving number um, within a certain, uh, a certain time range. Um, and uh, yeah, courts have, have been more than happy uh, in my experience to, uh, to accept uh, a summary of that nature. Um, of course, you have to make sure that you have the underlying data available for the court and for the opposing party uh, to, to review. That's all I have for now. thanks. Um, quick word on uh, blocked calls. Um, I feel like this is also something that maybe I have not been uh, running into quite as much, um, but uh, to the extent that people are still using uh, blocked calls, um, uh, there, there is a workaround um, and uh, 
just to be clear, I do not own any stock um, in this company, um, but uh, there's a, a private company called TrapCall um, that uh, you have to pay a monthly subscription. I think it's relatively inexpensive. Maybe uh, I think the basic subscription is somewhere around $6 a month. Uh, basically what uh, TrapCall does um, is that it reroutes any block calls to their own 800 number. Um, and for some reason, I don't completely understand um, that uh, our telecommunication systems are set up such that uh, you cannot block your number when you call an 800 number um, or 911. Um, so rerouting it to their own 800 numbers um, automatically unmasks it. Um, and then once the number is unmasked, it is then transmitted to the uh, subscriber's account. Um, and uh, in my experience, subpoenaing trap call is quite easy. Their um, subpoena compliance department is very responsive. Um, and uh, they'll be more than happy to send very official looking, um, looking records um, showing those unmasked calls and uh, supplying you with a letter of self-authentication. Um, so yeah, that's a, a good workaround if uh, your client is being harassed uh, or stalked through uh, blocked calls. Um, so I thought we would also spend um, a little bit of time talking about the uh, Wiretapping and Electronic Surveillance Control Act um, that Pennsylvania has. Um, uh, Pennsylvania is a little bit of an outlier in the United States. Uh, I, I don't remember how many other states actually offhand that have the, the two-party consent rule um, as it's uh, generally referred to. Uh, I think it's just a handful of states, uh, including Pennsylvania. Um, but the, the general idea here is that um, if you're going to uh, intercept um, a communication uh, whether that's electronic or oral, and we'll get into that distinction uh, a little bit more in a second, um, that uh, it is uh, illegal, uh, a, a felony of the third degree, I believe, um, if uh, the, the, the parties to that communication uh, did, did not consent. And, and there are some very important exceptions that we're going to be talking about to that rule, but that's, that's sort of the general um, idea. Um, now, it's as far as, well, in my experience, um, I have not seen a lot of actual prosecutions um, of, uh, of people for, uh, for violating the Wiretapping Act, uh, making an, a, an unauthorized uh, intercept of a communication. Uh, the way that it seems to generally um, you know, play a role in, in cases, certainly in, in family law cases, is that it's used to um, uh, to, to exclude evidence, right, um, as a, the fruit of, of the poisonous tree. Um, so if it was uh, illegally obtained evidence, then it's not going to be allowed um, into evidence in your, your PFA or custody case. Thanks. So uh, the first thing that uh, you need to do when you're, uh, you know, considering wiretapping issues is to uh, figure out whether or not you are dealing with uh, an oral or electronic uh, communication. Um, so is the thing that was intercepted electronic or oral? Um, intercept is defined uh, very broadly. Um, any sort of acquisition of the contents um, of an electronic or oral communication 
using whatever you know method under the sun, right? Um, so uh, that would include uh, you know if two people are talking face to face, um, right? So that would be an oral communication. There is no uh, no electronic devices being used uh, to mediate the communication between the two individuals. So, okay, now we're talking about oral communication. Um, now, if I uh, have a, my cell phone in my pocket and um, I'm using some sort of app, whatever, uh, and I begin to record that communication, that's going to be considered an interception. So I'm now intercepting an oral communication. Um, Let's see, an example of an electronic uh, interception would be, uh, let's say we're having the same conversation, the two people are having the same conversation, but now it's happening um, over a, a telephone. Um, and I, as one of the parties to that communication, begin to record the, the conversation that's happening over the telephone. Okay, so it's happening on the telephone, it's electronic, my recording using another cell phone or whatever, um, um, that would qualify as an interception. So I'm now intercepting an electronic communication. Um, so the way I broke this down, if it's oral, there is an extra step to the analysis. So that will be step number two. Um, if you could, thanks, Riley. Um, okay, so um, with oral communications only, there is this extra um, little bit of analysis that you have to do, uh, which is, um, to see whether or not the intercepted party um, to the oral communication had a justified expectation that the communication would not be subject to uh, interception. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a very fact-specific analysis um, by which I mean, uh, if you look at the case law, um, it's hard uh, to discern any sort of like hard and fast rules about when the expectation is justified under the circumstances. Um, but um, some factors uh, that you can consider um, in making your own arguments about whether something should be coming in or maybe out if you're trying to block it um, is, you know, where did the communication happen? Was it in a setting that is generally uh, associated with, um, uh, you know, an expectation of privacy such as one's home um, or somewhere um, out in public where that expectation of privacy um, is going to be uh, either a lot less or perhaps non-existent. Um, did, the other part, uh, did the other persons, uh, person or persons, uh, know that they were uh, being recorded and continue to speak? Uh, this is something that comes up in some of the cases. Um, and, and also in some of uh, my own cases. So I, I can think of some, some video recordings um, of oral communications where the opposing party is standing you know, right in front of the client uh, being video recorded and uh, you can hear uh, my client uh, you know, announce to, to the opposing party um, that, uh, that they're being recorded. Um, so you could argue that um, once they have been informed that they're being recorded, that they no longer have a justified expectation that they're not being recorded um, because they were told. Um, and uh, at least anything that comes after that announcement um, should be allowed under the, the Wiretapping Act. 
another factor uh, to consider if there were third parties present, right? So if there are a bunch of other people around, then what is really the expectation um, of privacy there? Um, and did the other person make their own recording of the communication? Uh, that was something that came up in one of the cases um, that was sort of a, a slam dunk um, that the person did, did not have a justified expectation um, since they were uh, busy making their own recording of the, uh, the oral communication. Thanks. Um, so again, step two, that's only for oral communication. Um, step three is, uh, for, uh, is for, for all kinds of communication. So um, if, the, uh, if the, the, the participants to the electronic or oral communication did give prior consent to the interception, then of course it's fine. Um, now there may be some um, evidentiary questions about whether or not that consent was given or not. Um, so for example, in the, uh, the example that I just gave about uh, uh, the client you know, recording a conversation, oral communication conversation going on between herself and the opposing party, um, you know, if, if that announcement that she was making the recording wasn't part of the recording, um, uh, and she, uh, you know, she says that uh, I announced it just before, I began making the recording. Um, now we have a, an evidentiary question of, you know, can we show that, can we convince the judge that the announcement was made or not? If yes, then uh, perhaps uh, that would uh, uh, be sufficient to show uh, consent. Um, but if we have consent, then yes, there's no problem. The interception is uh, legal uh, and uh, the evidence is admissible. If, if we can't show that there was prior consent given, uh, then uh, all is not necessarily lost. We still have one uh, last possible uh, option to, to, to bring the evidence into the case. Can I ask you a question, Larry? Yeah, of course. What if it's kind of an equivocal response to one party announcing I'm recording and the other party says, whatever? What, <laughs> what do you do with that? Oh, Arlie. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I, I think I would probably try first to argue uh, not so much consent. Um, I think that I would try, to, because we're talking about an oral communication. So I think I would try to say that this is not an oral communication the way that it is defined under the act. Uh, because that person uh, did not have a uh, justified expectation that the communication was not being intercepted. Um, and so it doesn't qualify as an oral communication the way that the act defines it. So it's not even covered by the act and therefore the evidence comes in as opposed to trying to argue that the person had uh, given this sort of, you know, yeah, equivocal kind of consent. I think that would be the stronger argument of the two. Excellent keeping me on my toes. <laughs> I'm here for. Um, so uh, there is this other um, exception to the uh, wiretapping act um, that I, I think is actually uh, slightly less known um, by practitioners. So um, I think it's, it's important to point out. Um, 
so section 5704, um, parentheses 11, um, did the intercepting party, uh, so the, the person making uh, the, the, the recording or whatever, um, have a reasonable suspicion that the intercepted party, um, so most likely the opposing party, uh, is committing, about to commit, or has committed a crime of violence? And uh, did they have a reason to believe that the evidence of the crime of evidence uh, may be obtained from the interception? Um, and if the answer to uh, this question is yes, then the interception uh, is, is legal um, and admissible. Um, and if no, then it's, uh, it's not coming in. Um, so, but okay, so what, what is a crime of violence? Of course, it is defined uh, by the act and it's a relatively lengthy list. Um, most of these things um, are you know, what you would sort of expect, I think, to see in a uh, definition of crime of violence. So your, your murder, manslaughter, and so forth. Um, uh, the, two, uh, the two entries here that um, I'd like to uh, think about a little bit, though, um, is the intimidation of witness or victim and uh, retaliation against uh, witness, victim, or party. Um, uh, if you can move to the yep. next one, thanks. <clears throat> um, right, so intimidation, retaliation. Um, yeah, intimidation is in the, uh, the, the criminal context, right? So uh, different kinds of behavior that are uh, you know, designed to uh, intimidate a witness to interfere with the criminal, uh, the, with the prosecution of a, of a criminal case. Um, and then retaliation uh, being in the, the civil context, um, you know, trying to get somebody essentially uh, not to uh, uh, pursue a, a civil matter uh, through the use of, of some kind of uh, retaliatory um, action. Um, so, uh, I can get this. Um, the reason that I want to highlight this. Um, is that um, I, I think if you have if you have a client with either a criminal stay away order or a uh, a no contact uh, protection from uh, abuse order, um, uh, I think it's it arguably um, any communication from uh, the restrained person, the defendant in that criminal or PFA matter, um, uh, can create a reasonable suspicion that that opposing party is committing or about to commit um, the crime of intimidation or retaliation um, because they are violating these um, orders that are meant to protect um, your client um, from, that, uh, from that defendant. So if we have a reasonable suspicion um, that uh, one of these crimes uh, is about to be committed or rather the, because the communication itself right, is the suspected crime, um, it would also um, stand to reason that it's reasonable to believe that the interception of the communication will obtain evidence of the crime, which is sort of the second prong of this crime of violence exception. Um, and uh, I have made this argument um, at least once, I think maybe twice successfully um, in PFA matters. Um, and I, I was able to 
bring in uh, interceptions of electronic communications. Um, the example that is most readily comes to mind uh, was a telephone call um, in violation of a no contact protection from abuse order um, where my client uh, basically recorded that call with a separate device. Um, and that would normally be prohibited under the wiretapping act. Um, she did not uh, announce or otherwise, you know, obtain the consent of the opposing party in making that, um, making that telephone call. Um, but the, uh, the judge did uh, agree with my argument that it fell under the crime of violence um, exception uh, and particularly the, the, the retaliation um, uh, part of that definition. And I, th I think I just answered uh, Daniel's um, question that it, that it was uh, used in a uh, PFA. But I'm not following the chat very clearly, so I'm not sure if I answered the right question or not. I did. Uh, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> um, okay, so we're running a little bit tight on time. Um, so we, we, we're going to talk a little bit about um, some ethical uh, considerations. Uh, so one question was, uh, can you withhold information about your connection to a legal proceeding to obtain information from a defendant by, for example, creating a fake social media account and friending the opposing party or the opposing party's friends? Um, and uh, the long and short of it is no. <laughs> um, that, that is a misrepresentation and it violates the rules of professional conduct. Um, what we didn't put on there is that you also can't um, have a paralegal or some other person that you uh, supervise uh, do that for you, right? Um, uh, you know, at your, at your instructions, that, that, it, that would still be, um, you know, you violating the rules of professional uh, conduct. Um, and, and then I guess the caveat here, um, or the, I don't know, we call it exception exactly, but obviously if the information is publicly available, then sure, um, you absolutely, uh, that's definitely fair game. Um, can you share evidence with the prosecutor in a related criminal matter? Um, and uh, I believe the answer is yes, as long as you have the client's informed consent. Um, this is actually uh, one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> Um, because there are lots of sort of uh, benefits that can uh, accrue to your client um, through the successful prosecution of a, of a related criminal case. You know, obviously you can invoke, um, you know, the rule of collateral uh, estoppel. Um, if somebody has been criminally convicted of simple assault or, or some other type of crime, that obviously is going to satisfy the definition of abuse in a PFA case. Um, and so then you uh, are more or less insured to get a uh, protection order um, for your client. Um, and then of course, convictions of certain kinds of crime um, are also gonna be very useful in, uh, in a custody matter, the 5329 um, crimes, convictions of those types of crimes. Um, so yeah, just make sure that you are explaining carefully uh, to your client um, what, it, what this means, um, that, uh, you know, explain the role of the prosecutor, that, uh, you know, the, the prosecutor is not your attorney. Um, uh, they represent the, the state, the Commonwealth, not you, so on and so forth. Okay, one, under one minute. <laughs> we have just about one minute left, and there was a question in the comment about um, electronic evidence during COVID. 
um, and what to do about that, which I think is a whole other um, uh, webinar. Um, and I also think that Larry and I are probably not the people to talk about that because Philadelphia is light years behind the rest of the counties and just like shut down and hasn't done anything. Um, but if anybody wants to um, send in some chat uh, comments about tips and tricks they've uh, been successful with um, during the pandemic, I'm sure that would be uh, really appreciated. And this is Kelly. While um, people are sending in any questions or comments they have, I'm going to launch the second of the CLE um, chat box questions. Please respond and I will leave it up for a minute. Thank you. Great. Well, while you answer those questions, that's all that we have prepared today. Thank you for attending. Um, if you have any questions, please reach out to Larry or I, and Kelly will be distributing the materials. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and um, happy Juneteenth tomorrow. Thank you so much for being with us, um, Arlie and Larry. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Have you. a great day.